Welcome. You're listening to sermons and talks from Providence Church in Brisbane. We believe that God speaks to us through His Word, the Bible. So we pray that as you listen, you'll be encouraged and challenged to love Jesus and live for Him. For more information about Providence Church, please visit our website, www.providencechurch.com. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 5. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out for Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. It was 11 p.m. It was a wet Tuesday night in country New South Wales. I'd just got home as a veterinarian stitching up a horse to a flashing red light on the answering machine. This is well before the days of mobile phones, right? And a farmer had a cow who was having trouble giving birth and he needed me out there fast. About 45 minute drive away, only a minute from where I'd just come from stitching up that horse. (laughs) Typical. So anyway, out I go in the teeming rain, arriving around midnight, hoping at least that the farmer had the cow under shelter so I could work in the dry. Uh, It wasn't (laughs) and I didn't. And so about the next hour or so, I lay out there in the rain and in the mud, uh, questioning my choice of profession, uh, trying to, you know, gently extract this calf. And after an hour or so, everything sort of got lined up, and then suddenly, in a rush, out she slid, a beautiful red heifer. One minute there was nothing, the next minute there's a live calf, a grateful farmer, and a very relieved vet. (laughs) Now, spiritual birth is a lot like physical birth. There's a before and after. There's a transition from being not born to being born. There's a defining moment with the Bible using many different metaphors to describe this transition that occurs at the moment of salvation. For example, from death to life from slaves to free, from enemies to friends, from lost to found. The question though then becomes, what happens next? Once you become a Christian, what have you got yourself in for? Well, one of the verses that speaks to this is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Where the Apostle Paul writes, and we all with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into that same image from one glory uh, to another. That is, once we become Christians, we begin a lifetime journey of transformation into the image of the Lord Jesus. A transformation actually brought about by God himself. I wonder though whether you've actually thought very much about that transformation process, about how God brings it about, really how we grow as Christians. 
Well, if you've gone along to church for any period of time, uh, you may have been told, or at least worked out, that one of the important ways that we grow as Christians is through the practice of the spiritual disciplines. That is, practices found in the Bible with Christians down through the centuries, when rightly practiced, have engaged in to help them grow as Christians. Things such as meditating on God's word, our prayer, fasting, our confession of sin, our worship, our service and so on. And these are really important ways which we grow as Christians. And yet, they're not the only way. Spiritual disciplines are an important way that we grow, but God can grow us through other ways as well, in addition to those disciplines. For now, he can grow us through the people that he puts in our lives. He can grow us through the circumstances that we face, both good and bad. And this morning we were going to consider four episodes or four sets of circumstances in the life of a man called Abram, later renamed Abraham. Circumstances in which he faced uncertainty in his life. And what we'll see is that God used these circumstances to grow and transform his faith. And the first episode we find in a couple of verses before the reading that was so helpfully brought to us. Genesis chapter 11, I've got them up on the screen, verses 27 to 32, and we find that this is the backstory to Abraham. And what we find is his backstory is really a life that begins with sadness. With sadness. Genesis 11, verse 27. This is the account of Terah, that's Abram's father. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married the name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now, Sarah, sorry, Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and he died in Haran. So here's a guy, Terah, he has three children. Abram, as he was known then, and his two brothers, Nahor and Haran. They lived in this place called Ur of the Chaldeans, sort of southern Iraq today, and served pagan gods as well as the true God, Yahweh. They sort of had a foot in both camps, a bit syncretistic. Now, before Terah dies, he witnesses each of his three sons' weddings. One of them, though, Haran, dies during Terah's lifetime after having a son himself. And another son, Abram, well, he marries, but his wife is unable to have kids. 
And so with Abram's brother and father both dying and Abram unable to have children, the sort of backstory to Abram is really not that encouraging. It's one of the sadness of syncretistic religion, of infertility and death. I wonder whether you can relate. You know, maybe you can look back over your own life up to this point and really reflect that there have been circumstances that have brought you great sadness. Maybe family separation or breakdown, uh, illness, uh, singleness, uh, academic studies, uh, infertility, uh, disappointments. Certainly not the script that you would have written for yourself or would wish, quite frankly, on anyone else. You know, the opening description of Abram and Sarai doesn't really look like the beginning of anything remarkable, quite frankly. Just sadness and grief. And as if really things weren't bad enough for Abram at this point, they get worse by having uncertainty thrown into the mix with God telling him to pack his bags and move. Again, I'll read from Genesis 1, pick up a couple of the verses read to us before. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing or bless those who bless you. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. See, God appears to this 75-year-old guy called Abram and tells him that he would have many descendants, that those descendants would have a land to live in and that they would be blessed. I mean, these are big promises, huge promises. These promises in Genesis 12 are nothing less than God's plan to get the world back to what he had originally created it to be in Genesis 1 and 2, of God's people living in God's place under God's blessing. They are, in fact, the backbone of the entire Bible. But this morning, I particularly want to focus on the, on the human perspective, on the enormity of what God is asking Abram and Sarai to do. For while these verses are commonly referred to as the call of Abram, I don't think they're so much as a call as a summons. They're not so much an invitation as a command. Abram, go, he says. We're not told how the Lord spoke to Abram or why he chose Abram and not someone else to go. God just seems to simply appear to speak to him out of the blue and tell him to leave everything he knows. You know, the, his country where he's lived all his life, his people, which have been all he's ever known, and his father's household, those he loved the most. He's to leave everything and head off into the distance. He doesn't even know where God is taking him. I mean, it sounds an irrational, a reckless, irresponsible proposal. 
You know, when English pastor William Carey sensed God's call to leave everything he had and knew and loved to go as a missionary to India in 1792, the response of his wife Kitty was, never. (laughs) How can you ask such a thing, she said. He may be calling you, but he's not calling me. Do you really think I'm going to set off for India when our baby will be only a few weeks old? I won't go. I won't. And quite frankly, humanly speaking, who could blame her for such a response? For like that which faced Abram when God told him to go, the proposal sounded irrational, uh, reckless, uh, irresponsible. Can I ask you a question this morning and actually pause for you to think? And have you ever taken a risk for God? Have you ever taken a risk for God? I mean, like a real risk. Would you be prepared to right now? Think back. Here we are this morning. Here's Pastor Mikey, Heidi, finishing college. I could go to any number of churches. I'd love to have them. Good training, going to secure income, infrastructure there. But no, they were willing to take the risk following God's call to plant a church. If they hadn't have been prepared to take that risk and all the uncertainty that faced them, and still is, none of us would be here today. Chatney Eunice, Greg, before the service, Eunice tell me, left her law degree and the financial security that brings and the status that brings for who knows where? Because that's what she thinks the Lord would have her and Jeff do. And then thinking about mission, I mean, who would do that? And we're just so risk-averse, not just as members of our society, but even as Christians. Abram was prepared to take a risk for God. We read in verse 4, Abram went... This is Genesis 12. Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Iran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. I mean, Abram was 75 years old when he was prepared to take a risk for God. Sarah, his wife, was 65 So why did they do it? I mean, why were they willing to live with uncertainty? Why were they willing to have their faith stretched by making life more difficult for themselves, by leaving everything they knew to follow God's direction? You know, we actually find a big clue in the New Testament as to why he did this. You see, whenever we read the Old Testament, we have to realise that it's an unfinished story. I mean, Jesus said that to his disciples on the day of his resurrection. We told them that each part of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, the writing and the prophets, all point to him, 
are all fulfilled by him. So whenever we read in the Old Testament, maybe you're reading it there in your devotions, we need to think, well, how does the New Testament help us to understand the Old Testament? How does the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension of the Lord Jesus impact the way we not just interpret but also apply that to our own lives? Well, one of the places that we find that uh, the New Testament helps us to understand what's going on to Abraham here is in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8, which reflects on this very incident in Genesis 12, a couple of thousand years after the event, where the writer says, Hebrews 11, by faith, Abraham when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For... He was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. My friends, this is, this is a stunning passage which answers so many questions, particularly why Abraham was prepared to expose himself and his wife and his extended family to uncertainty in obedience to God. Verse 10, for he was looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. He was looking ahead. And when I mean, you think about it, with, with far less to go on or knowledge of God or experience of God than we have today, he was still able to see that uncertainty in this life is still nothing compared to certainty in the next. And while he didn't know what sort of city awaited him and Sarai as they left the familiar surroundings of Ur, he knew that they could never compare with the heavenly city designed and constructed by God. And furthermore, Sarah, not to be outdone in the faith department, we read in verse 11, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. I mean, here she was, a 65-year-old woman who had been infertile her whole life. And God appears and makes a seemingly crazy promise so not only would she give birth to a son, but to an entire nation. And then she has to wait another 25 years till she is 90 for it to come true. But at some stage, she gets to the point of saying, God, I don't know how you're going to do it. But I believe you can. Because you are completely faithful, completely Reliable. And friend, trust in the faithfulness of God and the certainty of our eternal future. Those two things together is what will cause us to take a risk 
for God. The thing is, though, taking a risk for God doesn't eliminate doubt. I mean, our spiritual journey, friends, is not one sort of long story of upwards and outwards. Periods of faith are often still plagued with seasons of doubt. And doubt was very much part of Abraham's journey as well. Friends, we'll look now at Genesis 15, events set about 15 years after what we read in Genesis 12. Uh, Sarah is now 80, Abraham is now 90, and there's still no kids on the scene. And Abraham's starting to have some doubts about God's promises. Verse 1, Genesis 15, after this... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abraham said, Sovereign Lord, and what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who's going to inherit my state is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, in brackets, though you promised me some. <laughs> And so a servant in my household will be my heir. Now after a further 15 years since Genesis 12 of of trying to have children, preceded by decades before that of trying, what seemed highly unlikely back in Genesis 12 is laughable now in Genesis 15. You know, I mean, it's, it's one thing for God to use difficult circumstances to grow us as Christians... But have you ever reached the point in your life of saying to God, look, enough, I just can't take it anymore. These circumstances are not moulding me, they are breaking me. Well, Abraham appears to have reached that point in Genesis 15. He basically says, Lord God, this thing about having a son it ain't going to happen. So let's just cut our losses and everything I own is going to end up in the hands of one of my servants. But God responds in verse 4, Genesis 15. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Here God reaffirms the promise that he'd made in Genesis chapter 12 and says, Though you may not have any descendants at the moment, you will have. Just trust me. And as a visual demonstration, he takes him outside. And if you've ever been out to the country and just looked up and seen the stars, thousands and thousands of stars. And God says to him, so shall your offspring be. And I I can just imagine Abraham looking up and the thousands of stars almost blurring into one. As the tears welled up in his eyes and spilled down his face. And God says to him, so shall your offspring be. And 
it's almost you know, laughable. Here's a 90-year-old, an 80-year-old infertile couple going to give birth to an entire nation. And yet, and here it is, here's the point, verse 6. It's in those first four words, Abram believed the Lord. Abram said, Lord, I don't know how you're going to do this, but I trust you will. Abram took God at his word. He, he trusted God that it would happen one day. And so God considered Abram as righteous. See verse 6, Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Verses picked up multiple times in the New Testament as examples of faith. Most notably, Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4 is basically a sermon on Genesis 15 verse 6. What does it mean? for God to have credited Abraham as righteousness. You might want to look that up another time. Friends, despite God's promises, Abraham and Sarah have to wait a further 10 years to Abraham is now 100 and Sarah is 90 before the impossible happens. Sarah gives birth to a child. You see it there in verse 1 of Genesis 21. Really said pretty matter-of-factly, really. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore to him, and when his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. I mean, 25 years, 25 long years of wrestling, of testing, of, of doubt, of uncertainty, seem to have come to an end. I mean, finally, this long journey of faith is over. They've, they've crossed the finish line. Well, almost, but just not quite. You see, 10 years later, at the ripe old age of 110, 35 years after God had first promised Abraham and Sarah a child, God has one final test for Abraham, recorded in Genesis 22, verse 1. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on the mountain I will show you. Can we even begin to imagine how stunned Abraham would have felt? I mean, didn't, didn't God remember the promise he'd made to him 35 years before that he would allow Abraham and Sarah to have a son and that from him would come as many descendants as stars in the sky? And now he's growing up. God wants Abraham to kill him and it makes no sense. This is crazy. 
Now, at this point, we know something that Abraham doesn't know, that this is a test. See verse 1? Sometime later, God tested Abraham, we read. And what was God testing? That's what I've been reflecting on preparing this. I mean, what did God want from Abraham? Did he really want a sacrifice? Well, I think he, he did want a sacrifice, but not a sacrifice of Isaac, but a sacrifice of Abraham. That is, you see, God wanted Abraham to sacrifice his own will and own wisdom in regard to his son Isaac. God wanted to see whether Abraham would obey him despite the seeming craziness of the circumstances. Well, Abraham obeyed all right and obeyed quickly for we read in verse 3, early the next morning Abraham got up and loaded his donkey and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. He didn't muck around. Straight away he went. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And then if you know the story, he takes his son Isaac to the place God tells him to and builds an altar and ties his son, the son of the promise, the son of God's promise to it. And he lifts his arm, wheeling a knife, about to sacrifice his son until he hears these life-giving words from an angel. Verse 11. Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Verse 16, he says, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. I mean, this final episode in the life of Abraham is one of the great motivational stories in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a powerful story. It's an inspirational story. And this event is used in the New Testament to motivate us at being better at following God. Because what we see here in Abraham is something worth imitating. Again, let's please look with me finally at Hebrews 11 verse 17, which reflects again on this story of Abraham and Isaac. It says, By faith Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. 
And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. You see, Abraham's action sprung from having received the promises from God. Abraham only did what he did because he'd received a promise about future offspring. And this is what gave Abraham the faith to do what he did. He reasoned that since God had told him that it would be through Isaac would come many descendants, that God must somehow be able to raise even a dead person to life. And figuratively speaking, that's exactly what happened. And once again, Abraham passed the death, the test of, of trusting God in the face of uncertainty. And really, it's time to conclude this morning. And now we've just briefly considered four episodes in the life of Abraham, each time where he faced uncertainty and was called upon to simply trust God. And the particular circumstances that Abraham faced were not random, but designed by God to produce spiritual growth in Abraham. And the same, friends, goes for us. See, one of the ways that God grows us as Christians is through the circumstances he permits us to experience, both positive and negative. They are his means, they are his instruments for bringing about spiritual growth. For example, maybe a particular sermon or a prayer meeting or a, a Bible study or a, a Christian camp or convention or a, a conversation with a mentor or a pastor or, or friend may be the, the catalyst for us to make significant life decisions or giving up sinful habits or being liberated from an incorrect perspective. But alternatively, taking a risk for God and, and trusting him to work out details later is one of the ways that God can really grow us in faith. Now, Eunice and I were chatting before. You know, sometimes God gives us the 10-year plan. Sometimes it's just the next step. My personality likes the 10-year plan. <laughs> Much harder when it's just the next step. Thing is, though, that being said, if we were to think back, if you were to think back over your own Christian life and think about the times when you particularly grew as a Christian, was it when you had certainty? I suspect that many of the times that you have grown as a Christian has been through times of difficulty and challenge rather than during the easier times. You know, sickness, financial pressure, marriage struggles, uh, disappointments with work, maybe even just personal sinfulness. Both our own but also others that we experience can all be used by God. They can be harnessed, if you like, to make us more like Christ. That's what Romans 8.29 tells us. Those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. That God is working everything in our lives, both good and bad, to make us more like the image of Christ. And yet, friends, there's an important qualifier here, and it's the word can. See, circumstances can be harnessed by God and produce growth. But it's not automatic. 
Now, you may have heard the expression, circumstances can often make us bitter or better. <laughs> Friends, what's the key? It's certainly not the circumstances themselves, but how we respond to them, and also how we respond to the Holy Spirit. You see, simply having the Holy Spirit as Christians doesn't guarantee spiritual growth. Rather, it's our response to the Spirit's influence that significantly impacts our spiritual transformation. See, we can either respond to the Holy Spirit in any given circumstance in one of two ways. Either with cooperation of the Spirit or resistance to the Spirit. So we demonstrate cooperation with the Spirit when we receive the Spirit, are compelled by the Spirit, when we walk with the Spirit, when we live according to the Spirit. Alternatively, we show resistance to the Spirit, influence, as we, we grieve or quench or, or lie to or test the Spirit. Even as Christians, we can still respond in different ways. You know, Abraham's life was plagued by uncertainty brought about by challenging circumstances. When death of family members, being uprooted from his homeland, uh, infertility, face-stretching requests like sacrificing his son, old age, unfulfilled promises. But through these circumstances over many years... Abraham's character and spiritual life was transformed by God. You know, when we see someone succeed and we can be inspired, sorry, inspired to follow their example, seeing someone else achieve great things can motivate us to achieve great things ourselves. That's Friday, two days ago, two days ago I was chatting with a guy, a medical specialist. His wife's a medical specialist. Six kids, primary school age down to recently born. The day before, he'd handed in his resignation at the hospital where he worked. Because they're looking to go to the Middle East as a family, hoping to leave by February. Support level, less than 50%. You know? Uncertainty, well, are they going to get there in time? What's it going to be like to have to homeschool six kids in a very difficult part of the world? Doesn't know if he's even going to be able to use his medicine in this particular country. Not quite sure what visa platform. I said, well, what does it feel like handing in your resignation? It's a little bit like, you know, that uh, the big drop. If you've been on that ride, <laughs> You're there and suddenly it feels like the whole stomach is... Yeah. Man comes up to Jesus, Luke 9, says, Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you go. What's Jesus say? Foxes have holes. Birds of the air have nests. The Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Just if you want security in this life... I can't promise that. So I don't even know where I'm going to sleep tonight. Following Jesus is not about avoiding risk. Following Jesus is about being obedient to what he 
shows us to do. Are you prepared to take a risk for God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you grow each of us in our faith. Lord, knowing that the means that you might use are ones which may be challenging and difficult. Father, thank you for the example of Abram and Sarah. Lord, cause us to be people that like them are looking forward to a city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.